we have been in a series through the Gospel of Mark that we've titled Astonished and Amazed. And Mark is introducing us to Jesus and showing us who he is by what he does. And Mark uh, continually uses this phrase repeated throughout the Gospel that the audience, the, the, the onlookers, were astonished and amazed by Jesus. And so we are studying this passage of Scripture that we might also be astonished and amazed by him as well. Our numbers are a little thin this morning, and part of the reason for that is because our students, our middle schoolers and high schoolers, are off uh, at a fall retreat this weekend. And Sarah and the boys and I had the opportunity to join them yesterday afternoon and just spend a little bit of time with them while they were doing some uh, exercises, some team-building events, and it all culminated in a, a zip line um, for, the, for the students. And as soon as my boys saw that they, want, that they were going to do this zip line, they immediately, even Emerson, four years old, wanted to zip line across this canyon. And so we had a conversation, and the, the director, the camp director, stood, and he was talking about all of the safety measures, and he assured them, listen, we do this zip line all the time. We've taken our little kids across it. It's safe. We could take the, the helper's car, and we could zip, put it on this zip line, and it would take off, and it would be fine. The cable would hold. And I got to talking with one of our students, Austin, and he and I were joking around about how difficult it is to trust. Because I can watch any number of people go back and forth. You could hook up that car and zip it across and prove to me that that cable is going to hold. And I guarantee you, I'm going to find a reason to doubt that. Because even if it's not the cable, what, if, what, about, what about my carabiner? You know, that thing that hooks you to the wire and guarantees that you're not going to fall? Everybody else's might be fine, and the cable might be fine, but what about mine? And I can inevitably find a reason to doubt what's right in front of my eyes. Because trust is hard for us. Because there's so much in the world that's untrustworthy, we've been taught and we've been trained, whether it's through failures of the people that, that love us and that we love, or hurt from people that, that don't like us, and the world in general being just broken, reality is we've been trained to struggle with trust. And in these verses that we're looking at this morning, Mark wants us to learn that Jesus is not just worthy of our trust. We can understand that and get it in our minds. He wants us to trust Jesus with everything. So look with me, if you will, beginning in Mark chapter 7, verse 31, where Mark writes, Then he, that's Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond all measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves having, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Let's pray for Father in heaven, we submit this time to you. I come to you, Father God, confessing that there are many things on my heart and in my mind that are vying even now for my attention. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant me a single-heartedness in this moment to proclaim to myself, first and foremost, and to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here and who are watching online and may hear this at any point in the future, the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Open our eyes and our ears that we might see and that we might hear. Soften our hearts that there might not be anything in the way to our obedience, to our faithfulness, to trust in Jesus with all that he deserves. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen and amen. As Mark wants us to trust Jesus, the first thing that he shows us in this passage of Scripture is exactly what the people declare about Jesus at the end of that first little story in Mark chapter 6, verse 37, that Jesus is the one who does all things well. He's the one who does all things well. Mark starts and ends this section of Scripture that we're looking at with two miracles of Jesus Christ. And these two miracles of Jesus Christ are, are linked by several similarities. 
First off, the man who's brought in both instances is brought by a friend or a group of friends who are concerned enough about that individual's well-being that they're faithful to take their friend and bring that person to Jesus, no matter the cost. It's not the first time that we've seen this happen in the Gospel of Mark. If you'll remember, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, there were the friends who brought the lame man to Jesus, and they did whatever it took to get that one person to Jesus, even if it meant climbing on top of the roof, ripping the roof open, and lowering him down right into Jesus' lap. And so again, we see people bringing those in need to Jesus. We see Jesus takes these two men in both circumstances and he leads them away from the crowd that he might minister to them privately, which is abnormal in Jesus' ministry. We see in both instances that Jesus brings in, he adds some type of physical element to their healing, which Jesus hasn't been doing. Jesus has been able to heal individuals just with the spoken word. But in both of these instances, Jesus adds some type of physical element to their healing. Where he first touches the the deaf man's ears, and second, he touches the deaf man's tongue. The third time in the, in the, the, the blind man at Bethsaida, he literally spits in the man's eyes. And then touches the man's eyes. As he's bringing this physical element into it. And in the end, Jesus ends both of those miraculous events with the direction that the the individual healed and those who who are witnesses to it remain silent. So very much, I believe, Mark has brought us to this place where there are these bookends to what takes place in this. But the two miracles are actually linked not just by what actually happens inside of them, but another element that really is one of the most important truths that we need to draw out of this passage of Scripture. And it is in an illusion that Mark makes in that first story of the man who is deaf and who had, as Mark puts it, a speech impediment. The word that Mark uses right there to note that this man could not speak clearly He could make sounds, but he had a speech impediment. That word only appears twice in all of Scripture. Right here, and it appears in Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, where Isaiah says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap with like a deer, And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In that passage of Scripture, Isaiah is prophesying what things are going to look like when the Messiah comes. That all of these impediments to human freedom, they're not able to speak, they're not able to hear, they're not able to see, they're not able to walk and to leap, and that the deserts are are arid and dry and can bring no life, all of that is going to be rolled away with the coming of the Messiah. Mark is writing his gospel to a Gentile audience which means that they don't have the training in the Old Testament that a Jewish audience would have. So Mark very rarely makes references to the Old Testament. But when he does, he does it to make an extremely important point. Mark's only reason for using this one rare word would be if he wanted us to see 
that this direct connection to that Old Testament prophecy that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will set people free of their physical ailments and all that holds them back. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of what the Messiah is supposed to be and what the Messiah is supposed to do. That as Jesus has come into the world, the kingdom has come in Christ. As the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, clothed himself in humanity and stepped down from heaven, he brought with him all of the authority of heaven so that when Jesus teaches the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's because he is the king and he is there. And he is inaugurating all that is expected of the end time arrival of the kingdom of God. Are we living in the end times? Yes. We have been since Jesus got here. The problem with them and with us is that the end time doesn't look like we think it's supposed to. It's a whole lot longer than we expected. And so as Jesus comes into the world, he initiates, if you will, the arrival of the kingdom, and it begins, and it will one day come in all of its fulfillment. And so in Jesus, heaven is breaking forth in the earth, and in Jesus' ministry, all of God's promises come true. And all of his promises are coming true, not just for the world, but it's for these individuals as well. I love the fact that Jesus takes these two men and he pulls them away from the crowd. Because in Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus isn't just in, is not just interested in painting in the broad strokes for people. He is interested in every single individual's life. Why does he add these physical elements to these miracles? Because that's what these men needed. And Jesus gave them exactly what they needed. He's got a man who can't hear. He's got a man who can't speak. For who knows how long of his life, whether it was a stroke or something else, he's only able to make garbled noises. He's not going to understand a conversation that Jesus is going to try to have with him. So what does Jesus do? He indicates what he's about to do by touching the man's ears and then touching the man's tongue and then looking up to heaven and sighing a, he, a, 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 just a deep breath in his body so this man can actually see that, that Jesus takes this deep breath and exhales this big sigh as Jesus points up to heaven and he initiates a prayer so that this man not only understands what Jesus is about to do, that he is about to set his ears free and literally untie his tongue is what Mark says, but it's going to happen because God is going to do it. And then he speaks a word. Maybe it's the first word that this man has ever heard or heard in decades. We don't know. Be opened. It's a command. Just in the same sense that Jesus commanded demons to get out, now he demands this man's ears and tongue be opened. And he's healed. And he has the same thing with the blind man as he pulls him aside, that he can have this personal relationship with him as he pulls him out of the crowd and even out of the city. Can you imagine the dialogue that Jesus is having with this blind man as he takes him by the hand and leads him? And then he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open your eyes. And so he spits on his hands and he touches the man's eyes and he, he blesses the man. And the man can kind of sort of only see. 
And then Jesus touches his eyes again, and then his eyes are fully opened. And so Jesus has this added element of, of this almost halfway fulfillment of the promise before there is the full fulfillment of the promise. And we'll get to why that is later. But Jesus brings to these men exactly what they need. And what that tells us, what I get out of that passage of Scripture, is that we have to be careful that we never fall into this notion that there is a one-size-fits-all idea of church and ministry. You and I are called, like Jesus, to step into the personal experience of someone's life to get to know them. Yes, the gospel is true for every single person in the world. The gospel is what the gospel is, and we cannot change it. But we can and should sometimes change our approach to an individual and our presentation of the gospel so that we are faithful to follow the Holy Spirit's leading that we might present the gospel in the way they need to hear it. Because someone who has suffered from abuse is someone who has been told that their no doesn't matter. And if we hammer home on that person that they need to give their life to Jesus right now, we just add trauma to trauma. Instead of presenting the gospel in the way that they need giving them the freedom to spend their time and come to Christ. And we have to be patient to trust in the gospel. So Jesus, in entering to these, then the response of that, as Jesus brings these miracles, the response from the crowd is then to declare that he does all things well. And again, that's another hidden illusion, as Mark uses the exact same language that we read back in Genesis chapter 1, 31, when, G- when God is done creating the world, God saw everything that he had done, and behold, it was very good. He had done it all well. So in this, we see that Jesus is never concerned with performing a miracle for the sake of displaying his power or putting on a show. That's why he pulled these men off to themselves, that he might interact with them directly. Because Jesus isn't interested in becoming some sideshow where people bring all of their, their, their needs to him so that he has some miracle-working ministry. Instead, Jesus is very clear that what he is doing is he is teaching something. He is revealing something. He's always fulfilling his larger purpose of saving people from their sins and eliminating the effects of sin. When God created the the world. He created the world good. And sin messed it all up. Your sin and my sin, not just Adam and Eve's sin, but sin broke God's good creation. Sin is the reason that there is war. Sin is the reason that there is struggle and there is strife. Sin is the reason that, the, that the, we have earthquakes and, and, and hurricanes and all of the world, Paul tells us, is groaning under the weight of our sin. Sin is the reason why we have physical ailments and our bodies are weak and susceptible to disease. So Jesus, being the creator of all things, now clothed in humanity, is recreating the broken world in the image that God intended it to be. As he rolls back the curses and sets people free from the things that sin has broken and corrupted in their lives. So because he is the one who does all things well, He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our trust. And Mark proves that Jesus is capable and willing to meet our needs, but fully trusting him is difficult when we let the mystery of all that that goes unanswered stand in our way and cloud our vision 
And we see that in both the Pharisees and in the disciples in the rest of this passage of Scripture. Because though Jesus is worthy of our trust, trusting Jesus is impossible for those who trust in themselves. And that's what we see happens with the Pharisees. As the Pharisees meet Jesus as he gets off of the boat, we're jumping, I know, into the middle. But Jesus has this miraculous feeding of the 4,000, and they come across the lake, and the Pharisees immediately confront Jesus, and they begin arguing with him. And they are demanding from Jesus a sign from heaven. The Old Testament is very concerned that we make sure that all of those who claim to be prophets are truly proven to be prophets from God. And there are measures put in place in the Old Testament to make sure that someone is truly a prophet from God. And the most important one being, if a prophet declares that something is going to happen and it doesn't, they're not a prophet. If somebody declares that this is going to happen and it doesn't come true, they have not heard a word from God. But Jesus has already done that. As he told that paralytic, he said, your sins are forgiven. And they said, how dare you do that? And he said, listen, so that you will know that I have the ability to forgive sins, I'm going to tell him to get up and walk. And when he does it, it's proof. But that wasn't enough for the Pharisees. They're not okay with just the signs that Jesus is doing that are in this world and are meeting the the physical needs of healing and helping the real needs of the people that are around them. What they want is a sign from heaven. They're not content with the worldly signs that Jesus is doing as he is meeting real needs. Instead, they want some otherworldly sign that proves that he's not really from Satan, but that God is going to open heaven and do something otherworldly and incredibly miraculous. Good isn't good enough for these guys. They can't see what Jesus is doing because they have some preconceived notion of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And they want some apocalyptic sign coming from heaven that proves that Jesus doesn't just have the ability to heal people. Jesus has the ability to overthrow Rome and set up Israel as the most powerful spiritual and political power in the world. That's what they want. That's what they expect. Just as they, we saw last week, they are blinded about the true nature of righteousness. They are blind about the true nature of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And so it isn't that they want proof that he is who he says he is. They want proof that he is who they expect him to be. And we're just like them, aren't we? How is it oftentimes that we expect God to work according to our plans, according to our patterns? We'll get in front of God and we'll pray, God, your will be done as long as your will is my will. God, your will be done as long as your will is what I want. And that's rubber meets that road right here, right now. As I imagine that there are many evangelical Christians who are suffering an identity crisis right now because their prayers weren't answered with the election this past week. And the question is, are you really going to trust God right now? Is it lip service, or are you really willing to trust God with the outcome of this election? Are you really willing to trust God for the next four years of a president that you did or didn't want? Can you even possibly come to the place where you could even imagine that maybe a Biden presidency is the answer to your prayers in the first place? If not, 
then heed the word of, and the warning of Jesus. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. To let something creep inside of you that would sow seeds of doubt in God's goodness and his control over everything. And to really, truly trust in him. Because trusting in Jesus is impossible when we really trust in ourselves. But trusting in Jesus is difficult even for those who are his faithful followers. What I love when we see these disciples is that they, Jesus, when Mark presents them, it's not a picture of night and day, light and dark, that the, the, uh, the Pharisees are just so obstinate and lost and hard-hearted and everything else, and the disciples are getting it all over the place, and they're just like, this is great. We understand this. We understand that. There's lost as last year's Easter egg. They don't get it. It's the second time that they're out in a desert, desolate place. They're surrounded by thousands of people. This time, it isn't just one day. They've been with these people for three days. And these people have been listening to Jesus for three whole days. And Jesus comes to them. Again, almost the exact same question. I have, my heart goes out to these people. They've been with me for three days. They're hungry. Some of them have a long way to go away and to get home. And I don't want them to faint along the way. We need to get them something to eat. And the disciples' response is, well, where, how are we going to do that? Because they don't get it. And we don't know why they don't get it. Maybe it's because they, they didn't think to, you know, to impose upon Jesus, to expect that Jesus would do the same thing again or anything else. But nevertheless, we see that they struggle with this. Even though they were the hands and feet of Jesus in feeding 5,000. 10,000. It was somewhere between 10 and 15,000 if there were women and children there. And now we know that the people, the number of the people who were fed was just 4,000. There's smaller number and more resources. Last time there were only five loaves. Now they have seven. Now granted, their response to Jesus is not as hard-hearted and sarcastic as it was the last time. But nevertheless, we see that they don't get it. They're struggling. And Jesus blesses them. And Jesus blesses the crowd as he brings these seven loaves in. And he blesses them. And then he feeds again and multiplies this food until all are satisfied. And in the end, Jesus doesn't merely just meet their needs. He provides an abundance as the disciples go around. And this time, they collect seven baskets full. Now, last time, they got 12. Is Jesus losing his touch? The answer is no, because Mark actually uses an entirely different word for baskets. We translate both of them baskets, but there are two types of baskets in their life. One is the size of about a satchel, a little suitcase. And then there was a basket that was big enough, if you'll remember in the book of Acts, that Paul needed to escape from Damascus. He was running for his life, and what did they do? They lowered him out of the city in a basket. That's the type of basket that they had now. Baskets big enough to fit a person inside. Baskets heavy enough to hold a man's weight and lower him down out of a city. That's what Jesus gives to them. Then they have the confrontation with the disciples, and they, or with the, the Pharisees, and they're back in the boat a little bit later. And Jesus now is concerned about the unbelief of the Pharisees and the earthliness of Herod creeping into the hearts of his disciples. And so he tells them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. The hard-hearted disbelief, obstinate arrogance that things must be my way of the Pharisees 
And then Herod, if you remember, his sinful, I'm going to do whatever I want, meet all of my needs, no matter how wicked and evil that it is, on the other side. Jesus, be careful, because that can creep in. They still don't get it. I think, what's he talking about with bread? I know we don't have bread. How are, what are we going to do? Is he hungry? What's going on? But we only have one loaf of bread. There's not enough for all of us. And the disciples are so focused, so narrow-minded and distracted by their physical needs and their, their temporary circumstances that they are blind to the spiritual reality that Jesus wants them to see. The leaven is a parable. The notion that something can creep in and in creeping in, it can grow in your life and in my life. Maybe that's spiritual arrogance where we think we've got it all figured out. And if things aren't working the way that we intend, the way that we plan, the way that we understand, according to our preconceptions, our denominational traditions and anything else, then it clearly can't be God's way of doing things. Or maybe it's that sinfulness where just a little taste is enough to send you on a downward spiral away from God. Jesus says, beware. And the disciples don't get that spiritual reality that he's trying to reveal to them because they're so concerned with their lack of food. And as I said, their temporary and physical circumstances. But Jesus wants them to be far more concerned, not about their immediate circumstances, but about their immediate spiritual circumstances. Jesus is inviting them into something more than just feeding the poor and the hungry. Jesus is inviting them into the ministry of the Messiah that is here to break down walls and set people free, not just of diseases, but of sin itself. And how in the world can the disciples, how in the world can you and I trust Jesus Christ with our greatest spiritual needs if we can't trust him with our immediate physical circumstances? And so Jesus pegs them with all of these questions that says, where were you? Were you not paying attention? Don't you get it? How much more do I have to do to prove to you I can take care of a little bit of bread? Are your hearts so hard that you can't see that I've got you in the midst of these physical, difficult circumstances? And if you can't trust me with the immediate physical need, then you must be blind and deaf and hardened to your real spiritual needs. And so we see no resolution from the questions. He bombards them with about nine different questions and immediately they get off the boat and they're at Bethsaida. And so here comes this man brought by his friends who's blind. Maybe he was blind. It doesn't tell us that he was blind from birth. Maybe he could see at some point in his life. He indicates that he at least has some idea of what a tree and a person is supposed to look like. So maybe he lost his sight in some tragic accident. But nevertheless, Jesus, we said earlier, he heals him incompletely and then completely. Was that because something was wrong with Jesus? Was that because something was wrong with this man and his faith? We know we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus wasn't able to do incredible miracles in the city of Nazareth because they didn't have the faith in him. So maybe something's wrong with this man's faith. Or maybe something's wrong with the disciples. And Jesus takes this man's circumstance to expose in a physical way the truth of their spiritual condition because they kind of get it. 
they see a little bit. They see what they think is supposed to be people, but it really looks like trees. But they don't get it all the way. And as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to continue to reveal to them this spiritual truth, and you're going to see them get it a little bit. And about the time you think that they've got it, they put their foot in it. But note that Jesus is so patient with them. Jesus didn't give up on the blind men. But he did what was necessary, coming back again. And Jesus doesn't give up on his disciples. Despite the fact that they don't always get it. Jesus won't give up on you. And Jesus won't give up on me. question is, not just do we believe that, do we really believe it? Because there's one thing that Mark wants us to understand is we can get it up here and never actually really get it with our life. We can believe because we've got all of the facts in front of us, and then we can believe with our lives. There's a story that I've heard several pastors use, and I actually read it in one of my commentaries this past week. It talks about a man who declared, he was a tightrope walker with a circus, and he declared that he was going to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so he publicized it, and the crowd came out to watch him do it, and there was that, that tightrope across Niagara Falls, and all the crowd gathered around, and the man got up on the tightrope with his pole, and he walked himself ever so slowly and ever so carefully all the way across to the other side. And he got back on, and he had the rope, or he had the pole, and he came all the way back with that pole. So he had gone over, and he'd gone back. And then he said, how many of you believe that I can do it without the pole? And they were a little hint, I don't know, maybe, possibly. He said, okay, so he set the pole aside, and he got up there, and he put his arms out, and it took a little bit longer, but this time he got all the way across, and all the way back. And everybody clapped, and they were, they were so excited that he'd done this. They were amazed. He said, how many of you think that I can do it with a wheelbarrow? And this time, a little bit more of the crowd is like, yeah, you can do it with a wheelbarrow. Some others, maybe, possibly. I know that that thing catches some air, and, and maybe, I don't know. So he gets the wheelbarrow fixed, and he gets up there, and he goes all the way across and all the way back with this wheelbarrow. And everybody's just elated that he's done this. And he says, how many of you think that I can do it with the wheelbarrow and a wheelbarrow full of cement? And more of them are like, yeah, you can do it. You've done it already. We've got it. So he gets on there, and he takes the wheelbarrow, and he fills it with some cement bags, and he puts it on there, and he goes all the way across, and he comes all the way back with the cement. And everybody's just so excited. And he said, you've seen me do it with a pole. You've seen me do it without. You've seen me do it with a wheelbarrow and a wheelbarrow full of cement. How many of you think that I can do it with somebody inside? And everybody's excited. Absolutely. We know that you can do it. And he looks at the nearest gentleman, and he says, okay, sir, get in. Do you trust in Jesus enough to get in the wheelbarrow? Because you can understand it all day long. Jesus is worthy of your trust in everything. He's proven it again and again and again. There doesn't need to be any more signs from heaven. The question is, do you trust him with your everything? Or are you back and you're just a great cheerleader You've done it for years. You've declared your belief in Jesus. 
but you really aren't in the wheelbarrow. You've never really gone all the way in and trusting in Jesus. Jesus is patient with you. But I'm going to tell you, if you're not in that wheelbarrow, you won't make it to the other side. If you're not in Jesus, because you've put your faith and your trust in him, you can go through all the motions all your life. You can be in the right seat on Sunday morning. You can be doing the right things and checking off all of the right checklists that you want. But if you are not hidden in Jesus Christ because you have trusted him completely and totally for your salvation, you're lost as last year's Easter egg. And you need to swallow your pride. And you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ today with everything that you've got. And you need to believe in Jesus as your Savior. You're going to have an opportunity to do that right here and right now. To stop playing the game. Cry out to Jesus, save me. Thank you for being patient with me to this point. Now, change me forever.